0: Hi, I'm Esau Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hunt. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast, on the Ring of Podcast Network.
1: If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio,
2: a football podcast, on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's The Bear, starring Jeremy Allen White, Ayo Adeberi, and Eben moss Backrat. Season 2 follows as the crew work to transform their grimy sandwich joint into a next-level spot. It turns out the only thing harder than running a restaurant is opening a new one. Television Academy
0: members can watch all episodes at fxnetworks.com slash FYC. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports, I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear. Especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA, I make calls, I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it. You can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down in your local wherever. And you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing in the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at Viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons.
2: It is Thursday, June 29th. It's a booming summer for the biggest acts on the concert circuit. Nobody is bigger than Taylor Swift, literally. The Wall Street Journal asked this week whether Swift's current era's show might become the first billion-dollar grossing concert tour. When I saw that headline, I thought, of course she will. I'm not a Taylor Swift scholar, but I know enough to know she's not going out on her first tour after five years and four albums unless she can break a record. Elton John's farewell tour, which has been going on for five years, quite a farewell, currently has the record at $887 million. Ed Sheeran is next with $776 million on his pre-COVID tour. Taylor just added a sixth date in L.A., so that's 53 shows in the U.S. ending in August, mostly in huge stadiums, and there are 54 planned overseas, 106 total by London next summer, and more dates will likely be added. The average ticket price, according to Billboard, is $215, so do the math, and it ranges from $6 million to $13 million per show, depending on the city and the venue. One music agent said it's, quote, almost like a once-in-a-lifetime phenomenon, end quote. So how much is Taylor Swift actually making on this tour? She doesn't keep all the revenue, of course. They rent the venues, they stage the show, pay the promoter. It's one of the AEG labels, around 10%, although maybe a little lower, given her leverage. She doesn't have a booking agent, so she saves there. And tickets aren't the only revenue stream here. There's merch, there's sponsorships, of course, the spike in music sales and streaming that comes along with this momentum on the tour. A lot of different buckets and a lot to talk about with our guest today, Nathan Hubbard. Nathan is the former CEO of Ticketmaster, everybody's favorite company. Then he was the founder of Rival, a ticketing tech platform that he sold to Ticketmaster. He's worked at Twitter, and he now runs a company called Firebird Music, which helps artists better connect with their fans. He also hosts, and this is my favorite, two podcasts for The Ringer, one about golf and the other every single album about Taylor Swift. I'd like to know the Venn diagram of listeners to both those pods. Anyway, Nathan is the guy to talk to about the financials of the Taylor Swift tour whether she will indeed get to that billion-dollar milestone or beyond. From The Ringer and Buck, I'm Matt Bellamy, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Nathan Hubbard. Welcome, Nathan.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here talking Taylor, I gather.
2: Yes, fellow Ringer podcaster, a very knowledgeable person. And you've been in the mix on this. You are someone that is perfect to discuss the topic of Taylor Swift and her tour. And I want to just get right to it. Will the Heiress
1: tour be the first billion dollar grossing tour? 100% yes, but mm-hmm. it's going to be followed pretty quickly by a number of others that are out there. I think there's a chance that Coldplay may get there. I think there's a chance that Beyonce may get there. We're in this moment in time where artists are starting to figure out that They can optimize pricing and price at the intersection of supply and demand. And that's great for artists because forever they've been, quite frankly, exploited by the secondary market. I think in Taylor's case, she's still got a heck of a lot of upside. If you look at the difference between her ticket price and what's happening in the secondary market. So she's driving it through in pure volume by playing all these stadiums.
2: Right. And she just added another LA show. She's got the whole international leg still to come. Yeah, um, I want to get into the the revenue here, and I, I'm somewhat familiar with this, but not all of our listeners might be. So, give us the breakdown of here of how Taylor Swift makes money off this tour and all the various ways that she does it.
1: Well, at a macro level, it's ticket. Price, right? And if she's playing stadium, she's probably playing to seventy thousand ish people sure. a night. Depends on the city. Yeah, but
2: the, and then you know, Billboard said her average ticket price is two fifteen.
1: Do you think that's correct? I think that's about right. So okay. if she's making a little over thirteen million bucks a, a night in, in mm-hmm. a venue, seventy thousand ish tickets, that's going to get you into the one eighty five two fifteen ticket price range. And look, if if you've been to the tour, you'd know that the experiences of this thing are super different. Just like. If you're at a football game in one of these stadiums, if you're in the upper 400 section, it's very, very different than being down on the floor, very, very different than being in the bowl. And what they've started to do across the music business, and Taylor's taken advantage of this, although she's done it very conservatively. And we should talk about the fact that despite, I think, being probably the best CEO in the music business, she is conservative at the core in how she manages her fan base. But they have waded into this idea of pricing inventory differently depending on where it is. Are seats on the aisle more valuable? Are seats a few rows apart priced differently? So they've gotten into some more sophisticated pricing. That what I think about is a city-wise?
2: Reflection. Is LA different price than Kansas City?
1: she has done that in some cases, yes, particularly a lot of people noticed that some of her international tours uh, in South America, that the the ticket prices were a little bit lower there. But the thing, it's not just the revenue side because at the end of the day, I mean, we were talking about a billion in revenue, but she's got a lot of costs that are associated. I mean, she's got 50 plus trucks that are parked underneath those stadiums. She's got a crew of a ton of people. There's a lot of expenses that go into this. And one of the things that she did on this tour, I think if she looked over the course of the last year she would have seen two other artists who toured and did some things that weren't totally groundbreaking but they absolutely influenced the way that they set up this tour. The first was Harry Styles who set up residencies in markets and instead of just going town to town to town to town to town to, town to try to play everywhere they started to realize that hey fans will travel. We got locked up in covid Live events have become a thing. These experiences of human beings being chemically wired to be together are playing out across a whole bunch of businesses, but nowhere greater than live concert business. And so Harry Styles figured out that if I post up in one arena for seven nights or for three weeks that I can save a bunch of costs because those trucks aren't packing up. The, the roadies aren't pulling down all the scaffolding and having to put it back up. So they figured out that if they do these mini residencies, they can save a lot on costs. And I think that's why, you know, the international dates are going up. She's going to play four Wembley shows in London. They've now added a fifth. They can get to seven if they want. And, and there's, a, there's a cost sort of strategy behind not just making a ton of revenue, but also having that ultimately flow to her bottom line.
2: Well, and if you look at the shows in LA, everyone's going nuts over the fact that she's playing six shows at SoFi, which is what, if you do the math, about 350,000 fans that will get to see her. But she's not playing San Diego. She's not playing Orange County. She's only doing a couple Bay Area shows. So this is really the California stop on the leg. And there's 40 million people that live in California. So it's not that much of a stretch when you start to think about it. So when you look at the numbers here, let's, let's say, just for estimation going on the very, the various sizes of the venues, let's say it's $10 million in gross per show. Yeah. The journal did a calculation here, taking off about $2 million to $3 million for what the host stadium takes. Then there is the staging costs, the stuff that you just mentioned. There's a promoter's cut, which could remove up to 50% of the remaining revenue, given all the promoter share and all the staging stuff, which, according to the journal, said that's about $3.5 million to $4 million in profit per night from the actual show.
1: Does that sound right to you? Yeah, it sounds about right to me. It it, it does. I think there, there are probably some things around the edges that that are more or less that the promoter, I'm guessing, is not quite making that much money. I think her costs are a little bit higher, but that's my okay. guess. Yeah, so I mean, she has probably, huge yeah. leverage. She has yeah. huge
2: leverage over these promoters can probably get uh, lower fee.
1: I think her profit margin on these shows is probably about a third. Okay.
2: And she doesn't have an agency. She used to have William Morris, and she took all that in-house, so she doesn't pay a touring agent cost. Um, so that saves her money there. Yeah, And then there's the other revenue streams that come. We're not even That's talking it. about the merch rights here, because the merch can add, what is it, you know,
1: two, three million per show? Absolutely. I mean, she look. It used to be back in the day, and look, this is also, <laughs> I should say, her merch is not great. If you if you go pull oh, the really? fan base, <laughs> if you go pull the fan base. They'll tell you that it's an area in which she could level up a bit, and you'll notice she hasn't moved into fashion lines. She hasn't gone in that direction. It doesn't matter. People are still buying the crap out of it. They're sleeping under the trailers in the parking lots, and you're looking at. I, it, the, the traditional sort of rock band used to do $8, 10 12 14 a head. Mm. Harry Styles, we heard, was doing upwards of $60 a head. My gut says Taylor is in that vicinity.
2: Yeah, the estimates are between 50 and 75 bucks per person per night on merch. And, you know, she gets a cut out. Does she
1: share in concessions at these venues? So the way that these deals are likely working, and I haven't seen it, but usually what happens is the venue is paying her guarantee per night, or the promoter's paying her a guarantee per night. And uh, because they know it's a sellout, there really isn't any overage. And so then the, the promoter then has to pay the venue. The promoter usually is getting some cut of food and beverage, of parking that come through the stadium. But when Taylor Swift goes out on tour, she knows exactly how much she's going to make every single night.
2: So she does or doesn't get a percentage of what the promoter gets from concessions and parking?
1: Look, indirectly, that's mm-hmm. going to be paid to her. Sure. But the promoter is probably the one who is working all that out with the venue. That's where some of the promoter's profit comes in. Right. Taylor right. Swift knows for every incremental stadium show that I play, I'm going to gross $13 million. Right. Or whatever that number ends up being. Yeah.
2: And then the, on top of that comes the sponsorship which has there been any reporting about what Capital One pays her? Well, she picked (laughs) picked, a lot.
1: Yeah, it's it's a lot. I mean, you're talking about, you know, mid double digit millions, I expect in that deal, given the work. She
2: does commercials for them and she does other stuff as well.
1: She does. Yeah. And, and she she's done a very good job historically of tying sponsors into the tour. This one is a little bit less commercial. I mean, it, during the 1989 tour, she had Keds commercials with her in it. She had Diet Coke commercials that were up on stage. I think that the pre-show now has become a little bit less commercialized in that way, because let's be honest, she doesn't need the money. Um, but she still you know, has picked her sponsors. How dare you? How dare of, you suggest
2: kind of, that an artist does not need money? Well, she deserves it. She doesn't need it. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Why is she not reporting her grosses to Billboard Box Score? I thought that was an interesting detail. Because she doesn't have to.
1: She just doesn't have to. But nobody has
2: to. I mean, Elton John doesn't have to. And he does because he likes the fact that Billboard reports every week that he's got a top tour.
1: Yeah, I think th- there's data that's flowing through Polestar. It- it's mm-hmm. ultimately coming out. I think there've been a lot of questions about her business, right? She th- again, she is the best chief marketing officer, chief, you know, chief executive officer in the music business. She has her finger very close on the pulse of the fans. And if you recall when these tickets went on sale, you know, th- there was a whole lot of outrage about what effectively was a supply and demand problem. Oh, yeah. We did a whole show on this. So, yeah, I think she's been very sensitive to the fact that it costs a lot of money to go to this show. And as you just said, fans are spending money to travel to do this. I mean, if you think about the nightmare that Adele had when she had to cancel the show the night before she was going to go and start the residency. Oh, there were fans in the air. In, on the way in the to air, Vegas. Right. And and you just can't get that money back. So I think that coupled maybe with the the fake private jet scandal around Taylor, I think she's just sensitive to sort of flaunting it um, because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, that connection with the fan is she's probably the best direct to consumer marketer that exists. And, and she's very protective of her brand.
2: Yeah. My theory on the Ticketmaster debacle was that she liked it. That she ultimately liked the fact that she broke the system; that she was so popular.
1: You know, I I don't think anybody likes uh, seeing what <laughs> happened. It, it wasn't fun for the for the ticketmaster folks. I haven't worked there in a decade, but, yeah. but I, I I know those are good. Good meaning uh, people none of that was fun for them. I- I'm sure it wasn't fun for Taylor Swift, but you know what it does represent is that she's a non-scalable resource. You can't right. make more of her. and right. so you know, yes, she's gonna make a, she's gonna make ten to thirteen whatever million dollars a night. she's gonna play a hundred plus shows around the world. That's how we're gonna get over a billion dollars. But if there were eight Taylor Swifts, you know, if this was a, you know, a kid show or something, if this was Baby Shark and you could put him in a costume, you could put him all around the world and she'd probably sell 10 times as many tickets as she is here.
2: No, she, she should do what ABBA did when Craig went to see them in London and it was a hologram.
1: (laughs) There you go. Well, I think, I think she'll ultimately. Craig Craig paid a hundred bucks
2: to see an, an ABBA hologram. Yeah. And imagine if it was Taylor Swift, in 30 different cities around the world, you know, beamed in at the same time she was actually performing.
1: Well, there are these communities that are gathering in the parking lots now of people right. who weren't able to afford tickets and I think that's one of the reasons they've got the merch trucks out in the lot too, but they really haven't figured out nor do they need to to figure out how to monetize those folks. It's there's just such a wave of energy and to be honest, I was at the Vegas show which was the second show of the tour secondary market prices before that show were going down as the day got closer to show. And so you could have gotten a reasonably priced ticket on Friday afternoon of that show. Now, absolutely not. And there's been this sort of whirlwind acceptance of Taylor across culture that I think if you really put a pin on it, it's become more acceptable for guys to go to this concert. The first couple yeah. shows, it was mothers, daughters, members of the LGBTQ community. And as the show started rolling out, more and more athletes like J.K. Watt and, uh, you know... Aaron Rodgers had yeah, quite an experience. Start showing up. And now you got every training camp for football. Just today, the PGA Tour, interviewing their guys. Who's your favorite Taylor Swift song? There's just been this sort of acceptance by everyone of this cultural phenomenon. And as a result, ticket prices right up until the show
0: are as high as you're ever going to see them. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing.
2: I have a question about Taylor's share of the secondary market, because, you know, the way that the ticketing business works now is Ticketmaster owns a number of these secondary market resellers, correct?
1: No, they own they have through the site. They have the ability to sell a ticket that is either being sold for the first time or sold for the second time. And they can validate what it is. They're in that business. But uh, uh, on this tour, they've obviously, um, out of respect for the artist, I think been a lot more conservative in what they've done.
2: So my question is, if Ticketmaster is the seller of the primary seats and a seller of secondary seats, does Taylor share in the ticket price on the secondary market when it's controlled by Ticketmaster?
1: So I don't believe that Ticketmaster is actually doing secondary sales for this tour. But historically, when you see that product of primary and secondary together, that is something that the artist participates in and that they can control, which I would argue is the right way to do it. Artists should get to control the terms around their tickets. When you see the tickets off on the Stubhubs and the other sites of the world, those are brokers who are trying to create arbitrage, who are buying dollar bills for 25 cents and reselling them to fans out there. And that's the Wild West. And that's part of the reason why the secondary tickets are, are getting more expensive as time goes on, because you've got a lot of brokers who sold a ticket that they didn't have to fans. Call it three months ago. They sold you tickets to that L.A. show figuring well i can go buy it if somebody pays 4000 dollars for this ticket i can go buy it somewhere for i don't know 1000 800 2000 as it gets closer to the show they're finding that tickets are in 6000 7000 dollars so they haven't been fulfilling those orders they've been canceling them and leaving people sort of out in the cold without those tickets can they do that
2: isn't that a contract when you agree to buy a ticket from a reseller
1: Listen. The reseller just shuts down their account and, and ghosts on StubHub. That there's been a lot of that activity in the secondary market because it's just like a short squeeze in the st- in the stock market, but it's much more governed. You can't run away from that. There's a lot of brokers, small time brokers, who sold dollar bills for what they thought <laughs> were were four dollars, but ended up being twenty five cents.
2: Yeah, the image of. The merch trucks parked in the parking lots of these shows is to cater to all these sad fathers who are left out <laughs> while their daughters are inside. That is quite a picture. Uh, I'd love to talk to some of these dads who are sitting out and know how much they've paid for their tickets and then now
1: they're buying a $100 t shirt. It's, it's, it is, uh, <laughs> It's monetization at its finest. And again, I would say she's been very protective of this. I mean, she could be charging a lot more for these tickets. She could be charging a lot more for the merchandise. And I think she's been restrained because at the end of the day, uh, the reason for the, the support, the broad based support for her, is she's just got her finger on the pulse of this fan base. She knows how far to turn the dials and where to be careful.
2: Yeah, you do not see a lot of gouging complaints in the Taylor Swift media ecosystem. You hear a lot of complaints about availability of tickets. But like you said, that is a supply and demand issue. You don't see people as much coming down on her personally for the prices that some people are paying to get into these shows. No, you
1: heard complaints around the Bruce Springsteen tour when they went to some variable-based pricing, which, again, you know, I think artists ought to be paid what they're worth. So you would
2: have done dynamic for Taylor's tour? You would have had the $10,000 front row seats?
1: I think they managed it as best they possibly could because what they effectively had was a stampede. They had millions and millions of people who all wanted 70,000 unique SKUs at the exact same moment in time. I think they handled it really well. I also think like there are new ways that you'll start to see tickets sold going forward. You could hold every other row in the first 20 rows and go up and distribute them to people in the nosebleeds, right? So that people pay for less, they get more. You don't want to build an Elizabethan theater where you got the plebs in the back and the rich people in the front. That creates, you know, shitty look, but it's also super stale energy so artists have to think about creative ways to reward fans with access
2: yeah they were doing that for hamilton in the heyday when people were paying five grand to get into hamilton and then every day they would do a lottery for the front row and bring in regular fans i mean i get that but you know how much do you think taylor could be making on this tour if you say that it's going to be a billion dollar tour probably could she get to two billion like
1: Like, how high could she have gotten? I mean, again, without the AI holographic you know, uh, a representation of her, I think, if she can't play more shows, and by the way, she could be playing more shows, but from a pure pricing perspective, the secondary market suggests she could be making almost twice as much. Um, And if she decided to go out and hit it, and this is a busy woman, I mean, she's writing and directing a film, she's clearly recording a ton more music, she's really only playing weekends and then flying to some city where she's got a house and hanging out during the week, recording music. So if she played more, again, I think there is enough demand around the world for 10 times as many Taylor Swift shows.
2: So it could have been a $2 billion tour, but she may have... Undeniably. She may have lost some fans in the process and may have lost her sanity. As well,
1: I think that's right. Listen, she's up there for three hours and fifteen minutes playing forty-four songs a night, and occasionally forty-five. It's it's a pretty physically grueling thing to do. I, I think she just was conscious that, from an image perspective, it, we're still not ready to see two thousand dollar tickets in the three hundred level of Foxborough Stadium.
2: All right. So all told, this tour grosses a billion dollars. What is taylor's cut of this everything all in expenses fees promoters all of it what is it what is in her pocket at the end of when she finishes that last show in london next august how much will she have made off this tour?
1: I think if you believe what you read, it mm-hmm. looks like her margin on this stuff is in the is in the 30 plus percent range. So if she's going to gross in the 1.2 billion, you you're talking about her it, with a take home of 3 to 400 million on a tour.
2: All in, so she for her troubles for a 18 month tour, she will make between 300 and 400 million. It's a pretty good business. Not bad, right? Not to mention the fact that her music is spiking and she can do whatever endorsements she wants to do. This is obviously setting her up for the next 10 tours that she's going to do until she's 70 years old.
1: Yeah, I think she's used this tour to relaunch a new album, right? She's on a mission to reclaim her art. She's, mm-hmm. she's re-recorded all of the albums that other people own. And that is not a financial thing for her so much as it is like a, a principled reclaiming of the stuff that she created.
2: It's, it's, a, it's a fuck you. It's a fuck you to Scooter Braun
1: who doesn't own the catalog anymore, but still to people who who claim to own art. So she's used the tour to really effectively set up this next release of her Speak Now album, which comes out a week uh, from tomorrow. And again, she is interconnected these platforms. That one, she, you know, she's making money off the tour. She's using the tour to drive home the philosophical and, and for her, the sort of moral point of re-recording and owning her art. Is there any comp out there? There is not. I mean, I think in terms of artist advocacy, you'd say Prince. In terms of global fan base, you'd say, who has the most energized fan bases around the world besides Taylor Swift? You'd say BTS. Um, And you'd say Beyonce. But I just think... But Beyonce
2: doesn't sell albums, really. I mean, if we look at the numbers, it's, this one got to number one, but it's rare.
1: Yeah. I think there is no wider and deeper fan base than Taylor Swift's. Hmm.
2: All right, well, I'll see you at the L.A. show. Uh, Are you going? Which nights? I'm going to be at
1: a lot of those shows.
2: (laughs) Uh. (laughs) Do the Taylor Swift fans like you or not like you?
1: Yeah, they do. No, they do. Okay. They, they they love the pod that Nora and I do. Uh, they're, they've been super supportive. It's really the reason why it's been successful, because I think they appreciate folks who've gone deep into the catalog and told the story of her, not just as like, you know, the the what she was before this summer in a lot of eyes of people, which was somebody who wrote songs about ex-boyfriends. And yeah. think, you know, we've sort of tried to craft the story of her as one of the great American songwriters and certainly one of the great American businesswomen.
2: You were on Bill Simmons pod a couple weeks ago. It was great appearance. And you mentioned that, you know, Taylor has listened to your show. How do you know that?
1: You know, when I ran Sigmaster back in the day and some other things that I've done, I got to know her camp pretty well. And we get enough signal that uh, they're paying attention, which is nice because, but it's not unique. Let's be clear. She's out on the internet in the dark corners of the web watching everything. So this is not unique to our podcast. If you write, she's
2: She's hacked this recording right now and is listening to us talk. Uh, unequivocally. So, so
1: that, that is not a flex on our part. It is par for the course. If you put content out there, she consumes it. And it's part of what she ingests to make choices about how to manage the direct-to-consumer brand that she's running. All the great ones do this. Bono from U2, Sean Carter and Jay-Z, Madonna, the Rolling Stones. Like They all thought about themselves as brands, and they're sort of behind the scenes making choices for, for that brand.
2: Fascinating stuff. All right, Nathan Hubbard, thanks very much. Listen to your two pods on the Ringer Podcast Network. All right, we're back with the call sheet. Craig, it's upon us, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. I'm excited, I think. Yeah, Craig and I went to the premiere. It was a nice bear. We showed up a little late. We missed the John Williams uh, live orchestra version of the theme song, uh, which would have been nice to see in person. But unfortunately. yeah, we were we were
1: an hour early for cocaine bear, but we showed up late for Indiana Jones.
2: <laughs> priorities, priorities. Listen, they started it early. They started at 630. The joke was that they had to get Harrison Ford home early for his early bedtime. But uh, no, the movie's pretty good. I liked it. It's a fine addition. It's certainly not going to reinvent the franchise, but but it's, it's also fine.
1: not a disgrace by any means.
2: Yeah. It's not a disgrace. There are no aliens, but the tracking is not really fine. The tracking is 65 for this movie. Mm-hmm. And if I'm Disney, like you do not make a 250 million dollar Indiana Jones movie and open it to 65 like the last one in 2008 open to 100. Yeah. and I mean, this is just like that's not acceptable. I, I don't understand how this happened. Well, you know, the Kingdom of
1: the Crystal Skull, the fourth one, was marketed as, you know, the end of an era. This is is the final Indiana Jones movie. And now they're trying to kind of recapture that lightning in a bottle. I know. 15 years later.
2: Also, taking it to Cannes was a disaster. They thought they were going to replicate Top Gun, what happened last year. Everybody loved it, and it turned into this big thing. Does that really matter,
1: though, for normal people?
2: I mean, normal people don't know that the reviews weren't great out of Cannes, but it creates... Churn in the water. It creates buzz that you don't want. They did not have to show this movie six weeks before it premieres. They could have held it. They could have massaged it. No, you know, there's a whole playbook for when your movie is not great and you're trying to still open it big and taking it to a big public film festival like Cannes and unveiling it to the world and having the critics shit on it. Not what you want when you've got six weeks to
1: market the movie. Yeah, look, for the 20% of Americans who have Twitter, I guess it matters. But it
2: spirals out from there. And, you know, it's at 66, I think, percent on Rotten Tomatoes now, which is not great. It's the lowest of the series, but not a disaster. It's in Flash territory. It's in, uh, you know, some of these other movies that have come out this summer and sort of underwhelmed. But, you know, so I'm going to take the under on oh. this. I am. I know. <laughs> you sound so disappointed. Oh, no, uh, I I know. I know. He's 80 years old, but I am going to take the under on this. I just don't see this movie. We've had some disappointments over the last few weeks. I've been burned on taking the over. Oh, you got no hard feelings. I did get no hard feelings, but I was burned on both The Flash and Elemental. And I'm looking at the lineup here and maybe this movie will play because older people will come out for the rest of the summer. But I don't think the urgency is there. And I'm going to take the under.
1: I have faith. This
2: is the last movie people are going to see Harrison Ford in. That's probably going to be in theaters for a long time, if not ever. Are you? What are you talking about? The guy's working constantly. He'll and what, what is in, he going to
0: be in theaters?
2: I don't know, but he'll do. I mean, he'll he's going to do a bunch of stuff. I mean, I know he's got two TV shows, but he's in all the interviews. He's talking about how he can't stop working. So they'll. Pop oh, him and up. I guess he's in the next Captain America movie, but that's like a little side. Oh yeah, that. that's right. Yeah, he's playing someone you and, big.
1: <laughs> you and I are not equipped to talk about. Side no, characters in Marvel movies. We're
2: not, but he is. But he is playing someone decent. So like, he'll work till he can't anymore, till he like crashes his plane again or something. I don't know. But sadly, I don't think this movie is going to perform. Yet another blemish for the Lucasfilm regime under Kathy Kennedy. Don't get me started. But the fact that this movie took as long as it did to get made, it just feels like why, like why, why did this happen? And they didn't answer the question of why do we need this movie now? It's fine, it's a fine movie, but they never answer the question of why. That's a problem for audiences. All right, that's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Nathan Hubbard. I want to thank producer, Craig Horvath, our editor, Jesse Lopez. I want to thank you. We'll see you tomorrow.
0: This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike kingdom of the planet of the apes enter the kingdom in imax on may 10th and in theaters everywhere get tickets now this episode is brought to you by state farm you might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong but these are the words you really need to remember like a good neighbor state farm is there they've got options to fit your unique insurance needs meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need have coverage options to protect the things you value most